we have started the Vedanta Sara of Sadananda, which is uh, a traditional textbook introduction to the system of Advaita Vedanta. Uh, my plan was to go to the foundational texts of Vedanta, which are, which are the Upanishads, and we shall do that. Uh, but this text, this is the way a traditional student of Vedanta in India would be introduced to Advaita Vedanta. So I, I thought we should take that route. One big advantage of this is it gives you key definitions. It is later on when we talk about what is Brahman, what is Maya, um, what is the jiva, the sentient being? What do you mean by enlightenment? What exactly is the meaning of the sentence that thou art? Uh, what is the process, the methodology of Vedanta? All these things are so clearly de defined here. So it's very useful uh, as a foundation, uh, as a point. Uh, it's not an end, but it's a beginning. And uh, the disadvantage is, of course, that don't take it too too seriously because uh, this is a systematization after thousands of years of philosophizing on the Upanishads. The sources are the Upanishads. So um, each Upanishad you will find a different approach to the same message. But when we have the basics uh, at our disposal, we can understand the Upanishads better and also uh, enjoy the differences. Without this set of definitions, what happens is one might get confused. Uh, each Upanishad with its own terminology, its own approach, its own take on spirituality and enlightenment. All right. So last time we started and we did the first verse of this text. Traditionally, all these texts start with an invocation uh, called Mangalacharana, which is an auspicious invocation usually a salutation to the guru, salutation to God. And here we saw it was actually a salutation to Brahman, the ultimate reality of the universe. And in the first verse itself, you can see how much he has packed in. He's packed in the central teachings of Advaita Vedanta, basically. Um, there is one more verse, the second one, which is, an, uh, which is an invocation, a salutation to the guru, to his guru. So we shall proceed with that. Uh, you will all have the PDF, I presume. Um, even better if you have a copy of the book at hand. I think this is an older edition, but uh, you can easily get it from Amazon or from Vedanta Press, Vedanta Sara of uh, Sadananda, translated by Swami Nikhilananda. So every class we shall begin with the invocation, the first verse. Akhandam Satchidanandam Avang Manasagocharam Atmanam Akhiladharam Ashrae Bhishta Siddhai. I take, take refuge in the Atman, the self. But what kind of self? Not the self as I understand it right now, this person. Akhandam, the indivisible. By indivisible, we remember the three kinds of division which are possible. Uh, Swagata Bheda, uh, the uh, Vijatiya Bheda, Sajatiya Bheda. So, devoid of the three kinds of uh, possible divisions, undivided reality. Undivided, so what's the nature? What's, what is it made of? What is it actually? It's existence, Sat. Sat, it is consciousness, Chit. It is bliss, fulfillment, 
Ananda. It is also not something that you can express by either language or conce uh, conceptions. Avang manasagocharam cannot be reached by language, cannot be reached by um, conceptualizing. So it's myself. What about the rest? Akhiladharam. This very self, the real self, is the ground, the reality of the entire universe. It's the support of the entire universe. So the, the entire universe which you see is not apart from us. You, you are the fundamental reality of the universe. Akhiladharam. Literally, it means the foundation of everything. I take refuge in. Um, Ashray, and what kind of refuge is, is to be taken here? Normally, when you take refuge in, in Krishna or uh, Narayan or Shiva, so God exists and I take refuge in God. Or the Buddha, I take refuge in the Buddha and the teachings of the Sangha. That's kind of one kind of taking refuge. Here, you're talking about yourself. Remember, Atmanam. So what kind of refuge are you taking? Are you taking refuge in yourself? No. What it means here is, I know myself as I really am. So this taking refuge is realization of one's real self. Avishta Siddhai, for uh, attaining my desired goal, my cherished goal. Ultimately, our cherished goal of the author and all of us, and the author and the students and all of us, is enlightenment, is freedom, is God-realization. And um, the, the proximate goal, the goal right now, is a successful study of this text from the author's point of view, completion of the text. So this is what we saw last time. Now go, moving on to the second verse, which is also an invocation. Salutation to Guru, to his Guru. Guru what does it mean? Having worshipped the Guru, who on account of his being free from the illusion of duality, justifies the meaning of his name, Advayananda, I undertake the task of expounding the sense of Vedanta according to my light. So beautiful invocation to the Guru. Uh, his Guru's name is Advayananda, one whose bliss is in non-duality. Advaya, non-dvaya means duality. Advaya, non-duality. Ananda, one whose bliss is in non-duality. Um, guru Naradhya, saluting or worshipping or adoring the Guru. So the Guru here is in the Bahuvacham, that means the plural of the Sanskrit word Guru. And the um, Sammanartha, that is uh, in the sense of honouring. You know, in uh, England, the Queen has the royal we. So the queen refers to herself, the king refers to himself as we. Um, so plural. Similarly, if you refer to the guru as uh, they, <laughs> guru, plural. Now in this uh, new, brave new world of uh, multiple genders and everything, I think, uh, in fact, it's highly recommended that you refer to people as not he or she, but they, them. <laughs> but here guru is plural guru naradhya adoring or worshipping the guru what do I do? Vedanta saram the essence of Vedanta so that means I am not going to teach you Vedanta in details I am not going to teach you Vedanta in details I am going to introduce Vedanta to you the essence of Vedanta vakshye yathamati 
So the humility of the author is to my capacity, as far as I have grasped it. Yatha mati, mati, intellect, yatha, uh, to my, to, as far as possible, as is my understanding. Literally, it means as is my understanding, so I will share with you. Vakshe, I am going to speak of, I am going to discourse on the essence of Vedanta. So not the details of Vedanta, not going into the details, just details. Vedanta Sara. So the name of the book is also mentioned here. Vedanta Sara. Vedanta Sara literally means the essence of Vedanta. Notice um, one interesting thing. He doesn't say I'm going to expound to you Advaita Vedanta. He says to you that I'm going to expound to you Vedanta. So traditionally, all these schools of Vedanta, they always thought that we are teaching the correct interpretation of Vedanta. Vedanta literally means the teachings of the Upanishad. So what is the teaching of the Upanishad? According to Shankaracharya and his followers, including this, this teacher, it is non-dualism. So when, they, when they, they teach Vedanta, they will always say, we are teaching Vedanta. We are not teaching Advaita Vedanta. Uh, it, is, it is the Vedanta. But when, uh, say, Vishishta Advaita followers or Advaita followers or other schools of Vedanta, they will also say, we are teaching Vedanta. But one must keep in mind, these are clearly different systems of Vedanta. They have different interpretations. We are studying Advaita Vedanta here. All right. Now there is a very cute thing here, which I'll point out. It means, um, all right, let me tell you the problem, then the solution will be interesting to you. Now, traditionally in India, you're not supposed to take the name of your guru. You're not supposed to call your guru by his uh, name. So there are certain things like that. You don't take the name of your father. You don't call your father by your name or your mother by your, uh, her name. Uh, you, you don't even call your elder brother by, by their name. There are such things. The wife doesn't call her husband by his name. That might, be, that might sound weird to Western ears, but the, traditionally the wife wouldn't uh, address her husband uh, by, by name. So now, this makes the job of praising the guru sticky because now he has to salute his guru and let us know who, he, who his guru is. But how do you do it without naming the guru? How do you do it without naming the guru? Uh, what he does is, he says, in truly, it means the one who has bliss in non-duality. Uh, he, he is one worthy of the name, meaning of his name. The meaning of his name is one who has bliss in, um, in non-duality. So it means, it is true uh, in meaning also, not just the name. It's, it's quite a very, very uh, elegant way of dealing with the problem. Um, what, so if you, for example, want to say, Sarva Priyananda. So it's not just his name. It literally means what it says. So he's, what he's saying about his guru is, it's not just his name, but literally he is one who takes bliss in um, non-duality, which means he has indirectly indicated the name. My guru is the one who takes bliss in non-duality. Literally so, it's not just his name, which means his name is also the one who takes bliss in non-duality. Advayananda is not just the one who enjoys non-duality. That's his name too. We, we get it. That's his name too. Advayananda. Um, 
Why is, uh, uh, how does he enjoy the bliss of non-duality? Atita dvaita bhanata. The delusion of duality has gone. The delusion of duality has gone from him. Atita, he has transcended the delusion of duality. What does that mean? Does it, duality means this world of experience which we have. I am separate from you. God is separate from me. The world is separate from me. This separation, this, this difference, this multiplicity, that has disappeared from him. So does that mean that your guru does not see the differences? No, he sees the differences, but it is no longer real for him. Notice the delusion of duality has disappeared from, for him, from him. Not that he does not experience the duality. The experienced duality will continue as you see people different from you. See, for example, uh, a person who sees 10,000 waves in the ocean, and suddenly he realizes it's all one water. After realizing it's all one water, will he stop seeing the 10,000 waves? No. He sees the waves and he sees a deeper reality, the reality where everything is one, that reality called water. The goldsmith who sees a beautiful array of jewelry in the shop and realizes it's all one mass of gold. Does he stop seeing necklaces and bracelets and rings and tiaras? No, no, no. He sees all of that, but he sees the underlying reality too. So the illusion that they're all different has gone from him. Similarly, the illusion that this is a world which is different from me, that has gone from my guru. Therefore, he can delight in non-duality. All right. So this is the inner secret of this verse. Next. Text number three. So sometimes they're in verses, mostly they are in texts, line. In Sanskrit, gadya and padya. In Sanskrit, gadya means text and padya means verse. So it's in most of it is in text. Text number three. Vedanta nama upanishad pramanam tad upakarini sharira sutradinicha. What is Vedanta? Now it's defining. Classical definition of Vedanta. So the reason I'm doing this in a sing-song voice is this is how the brahmacharis would learn. And the, the teacher chants Vedanta Nama and the 50 or 100 brahmacharis would shout back in chorus Vedanta Nama. <laughs> These are things that you had to memorize. So straight away, if you ask what is Vedanta, they will immediately um, you know, uh, rattle it out. Vedanta Nama. Upanishad Pramanam Tadupakarini Charireka Sutra Dinicha. What does this mean? Vedanta is, Nama is, is verily, Vedanta is verily the spiritual knowledge which you get from the Upanishads. Upanishad Pramanam. What are the Upanishads? Upanishads are the philosophical spiritual teachings of the Vedas. Upanishads are the philosophical and spiritual teachings of the Vedas. Um, and the combined essence of the teachings of the Veda, uh, of the Upanishads is called Vedanta. Vedanta, end. Veda is the, the, the text called the Vedas or spiritual knowledge. So is it the end of the Vedas in some sense, but the Upanishads are not always found at the end of the texts called the Vedas. Sometimes they are found in the middle, sometimes in other places. So the real meaning of Vedanta is not the end of the Vedas. 
it means it's the final teaching or the highest teaching of the Vedanta. Precisely. Precisely, it means Siddhanta. Siddhanta is the word in Siddhanta in Sanskrit means final conclusion, highest teachings, the ultimate teaching. Siddhanta is the final conclusion, what it wants to say finally. So the Vedas are a mass of rituals. We'll see some of that coming on later on. Mass of rituals. So does it ultimately say you have to do Vedic rituals and offer oblations to Indra and Varuna and the Vedic gods? No, that's all on the, on the way. That's not the ultimate teachings of the Veda. The ultimate teachings of the Veda are found in the Upanishads and they are collectively called Vedanta. So Vedanta Nama Upanishad. Pramanam. Pramanam means source of knowledge. So you're seeing me. What is the pramanam? The word pramanam in, in Indian languages has come to mean proof. In our Indian languages, in Bengali and Hindi and other Indian languages, it has come to mean proof. But it, the original technical meaning is a related meaning actually. In philosophy, in darshana, uh, the word pramanam meant source of knowledge. So for example, you are seeing me. You have knowledge of me. You're hearing what I say. So what is, your, what is the source of your knowledge? What is the pramanam? Pramanam is perception. You have visual perception in Sanskrit, pratyaksha pramanam. And that visual perception is chakshusha with visual perceptual knowledge. Auditory perceptual knowledge. Through your ears, you hear the sound. And you can say, I know this. He said this. If you ask, how do you know? I saw him. I heard him. Seeing is my source, my pramanam. Hearing is my pramanam. In technically, this is called Pratyaksha Pramana, perceptual uh, source of knowledge. Here, it is scriptural source of knowledge. Vedanta, Upanishad Pramana is scriptural source of knowledge. Very quickly, I will uh, mention something which is a big, big subject. See, in an outline, this book is pretty good. But one big gap, one thing it completely fails to mention, which it should mention, but because I think the... Uh, subject is so vast, he, he left it out on purpose. Every system of philosophy has to say what are the sources of knowledge. So philosophy is metaphysics. Metaphysics uh, tells you what is real, what is true, what exists, what's the nature of the world, what's the nature of the self, what is the nature of the ultimate reality, God or the void or Brahman or whatever it is. So what is, is the subject matter of metaphysics. Um, the modern name, technical name for metaphysics is ontology. Ontology. Ontos meaning being, existing. The study of existence. What exists? That's ontology. So metaphysics, to, to, today it's called ontology. Now, when you say God exists, Brahman exists, or uh, string theory, then we'll say uh, super strings exist. Immediately the question will be, how do you know? How do you know? What is the basis of this claim? So the question will be an, what is called epistemological question. How do you know? What is the truth? Ontology or metaphysics. How do you know? Epistemology. That's another branch of philosophy. So in, in Indian philosophy, this was called Pramana Shastra. The, um, the discussion of the sources of knowledge. How do you know? So every philosophy at the very beginning has to say, what it considers to be the sources of knowledge. Vedanta has to say it, Buddhism has to say it, all philosophies have to say this. Um, 
Veda, Advaita Vedanta has six sources of knowledge. This book has, this is only one big uh, lacuna in my, my understanding that it does not mention the sources of knowledge. So I'll mention it, just keep it in mind. There's another book just like this, which, which is used as an introductory text called Vedanta Paribhasha, uh, the technical terms of Vedanta, written by an author called Dharmaraja Dwarindra, uh, many years after this. But that book is not as popular because it's much, it's much more difficult, especially for a beginner. And you know what that book is about? It, it wants to introduce you to Vedanta, but I think more than half the book is spent in explaining the different sources of knowledge, Pramana. It's such a deep and difficult subject. If you embark upon it, you're going to spend most of your time explaining that. What do you know? Brahman, Atman, all of that. How do you know? Here are the Pramanas. Now, when you start explaining the Pramanas, there's very little left over for explaining Advaita. So that book, uh, but it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very good book. I mean, it's very uh, highly regarded among scholars uh, as a scholarly introduction to Vedanta, especially it's a masterpiece on Vedantic, uh, on Advaitic epistemology, on the science of knowledge. Um, digression here, before I come back to my first digression. My first digression was this, the sources of knowledge in Advaita Vedanta. Second digression is a little story about this book, Vedanta Paribhasha, which gives you details about uh, the epistemology of Advaita Vedanta. So this, the cute story is this. That book was written by a scholar called Dharmaraja Dwarindra. He was a householder. He was a scholar of Nyaya, the Nyaya system of philosophy. He was not a non-dualist. He was not an Advaitavadi. He was not a Vedantin. But he wrote this book, which became a standard text of Vedanta. And the story is, why did he write this book? It seems his wife was a non-dualist. Uh, she was a Vedantin. And so she forced him to write this book. <laughs> that's why he wrote this book, uh, Vedanta Paribhasha. So that's the, that's the other book. Anyway, back to my first digression. What are the sources of knowledge in Advaita Vedanta? If you ask the question to an Advaitin, how do we know anything? So there are six sources of knowledge accepted by the Advaita, uh, Advaitin. In contrast, for example, the Charvaka, the materialist, says the only source of knowledge I accept is one. And that is perception. Whatever I, uh, I can see, hear, smell, taste, touch, that much alone is real for me. The Buddhist, for example, accepts uh, perception and uh, inference. So perception and reason. In Sanskrit, pratyaksha anumana. Of course, if you go into Buddhism, uh, the Buddha vachana, which they call sutra literature, that is also all, all functions almost like scripture. So that is also taken with a lot of reverence. Anyway, in Advaita Vedanta, what are the sources of knowledge? How do we know? Six sources of knowledge. I'll just mention them quickly. I will not go into details. First is Pratyaksha, perception. Pratyaksha, perception. Second, Anumana, inference or in general reasoning. Anumana, Anumana, inference or a more general term would be reasoning. Third uh, is upamana. Um, upamana. Difficult to translate. Analogy, analogical reasoning. I will not explain here. It will take too much time. And it's not directly relevant here. Upamana. 
The fourth one is Arthapatti. 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 If you want to write it down in English, it would be A-R-T-H-A-P-A-T-T-I. Arthapatti. I was told that there is actually a like a whiteboard function here. In Zoom, is there something like that? I don't know. Anyway, we'll find out later. So, okay, Arthapatti. And um, I can write it in the chat. You are right. Is the voice low? Um, somebody said the voice is, is low. You want it a little more? I hope it, this will be louder. Okay. Okay. Uh, let me just write it down here. Arthapatti. Arthapatti. That's one. The earlier one was Upamana. The next uh, before that was anumana and before that was pratyaksha attapatti's supposition and uh, then there is anupalabdhi anupalabdhi absence English translation would be absence. Absence is also a source of knowledge. How it works, we will not go into it. And then finally, Shruti, the Vedas. Vedas are also regarded as sources of knowledge. Shruti Pramana. Six sources of knowledge. Shruti means the Vedas or scripture. So six sources of knowledge. Perception, protection. Um, inference, Anumana, analogical reasoning, upamana, supposition is Arthapati is a um, supposition. It's like a hypothesis actually. And then absence, which is uh, anupalabdhi. And then the Shruti, scripture or Veda, six. That's all, all I wanted to say. And that's why he is saying here, that Upanishad Pramanam. Is there a gradation? Correct. Pratyaksha. Gradation. Somebody asked, is there a gradation? Are there something more important and less important? Yes, Pratyaksha is Jeshta Pramanam. That is the first uh, source of knowledge is perception. So whatever, everything depends on perception. Even to read the scriptures or hear Vedanta classes, you need perception. Um, one thing is that they don't contradict each other. So, for example, if the Upanishads or the Vedas say something that contradicts perception, not to be accepted. So, um, Shankaracharya says, even if a hundred Shrutis say fire is cold, it's not to be accepted. Even if a hundred Vedic texts say fire is cold, not to be accepted because our experience is fire is hot. So, um, for example, note when Advaita Vedanta says, uh, the world is mithya, it's an appearance. It does not say that you don't experience the world. Uh, see, we experience the world and we take it to be true. What Advaita Vedanta says is that second part, 
it cannot deny that you experience the world. Nothing can deny that you experience. You see people, see the body, mind, you can't deny it. But what Advaita Vedanta says is that that's not the reality. The underlying reality is Brahman. So when you take it to be real, you're mistaking it. So uh, that's how Advaita Vedanta functions. Advaita Vedanta never denies your experience, but it questions the reality of your experience, that you are experiencing it. The point is like this. When we wake up from a dream, what happens? We don't deny that we dreamt. We say that, oh, it was a dream. I thought it was real as long as it lasted, but now I have woken up and I know it's a dream. Or a child goes, you take a child to a horror movie and the child starts crying. Then you console the child. It's only a movie, my dear, you say. It's only a movie. Now, you don't deny that the child saw something horrifying or scary, but what you're denying is the reality of what the child saw. And once the reality is denied, the problem is solved, actually. It's no longer scary. All right. Now, what is Vedanta? Vedanta nama Upanishad pramanam the sources of knowledge called the Upanishads. So what kind of Pramanam is this? What kind of source of knowledge? Shruti Pramanam. Yeah, how is absence a source of knowledge? I'm not going to go into that. Big chapter. Uh, <laughs> once you enter into that, uh, that uh, we'll see. Um, later on, we can maybe get a chance to discuss it. There are books and books on that. So Upanishads are the source of knowledge and that is Vedanta. But that's not all of Vedanta. Tad Upakarini. Upakarini means beneficial. Things which help in understanding the Upanishads. Tad Upakarini. What are the other, other texts? Shariraka Sutra Adini. The Brahma Sutras. Adi means etc. Brahma Sutras etc. So the whole sentence means, what is Vedanta? It is the Upanishad, the source of spiritual knowledge called the Upanishads. And other helpful texts such as Brahma Sutra, etc. Shariraka Sutra means Brahma Sutras. So what are the Brahma Sutras? When you study the Upanishads, um, they're so diverse. This, this book is very neat and geometrical and you find it, it's very nice. But when you actually go to the Upanishads, they're like a jungle. It's so diverse and vast. So many questions arise there. And those questions have been dealt with in a philosophical text called the Brahma Sutras. So they are, in, they are in another form. Some texts are like the Gita is in verse form. This book is in text form. The uh, Brahma Sutras are in Sutra form, short aphorisms. So um, just two or three words or four or five words, that's all, not even a complete sentence. And there are, so these are called Sutras. And the Brahma Sutras have 555 such Sutras. And what did they do? They take up the various issues which rise out of the, arise out of the study of the Upanishads and try to uh, solve or answer questions. So it's a philosophical text, Brahma Sutras. And it says, so useful texts like the Brahma Sutras. So Brahma Sutras are based on the Upanishads. You study of the Upanishads and then Brahma Sutras are helpful. Etc. Adini, etc. So what are the etc? Bhagavad Gita. Primarily, Bhagavad Gita. What is the Bhagavad Gita's relation to Vedanta? Vedanta is Upanishads. Brahma Sutra is a philosophical deliberation on the Upanishads. Um, Bhagavad Gita is a concise and practical application of the knowledge of the Upanishads. 
Bhagavad Gita is entirely based on the Upanishads. So when you chant the, the Gita Mahima, the, the, the glory of the Bhagavad Gita, one verse says, Sarva Upanishado Gavo, uh, Gopala, uh, um, the, the Dogdha, uh, then the milkman is Gopala, Krishna, and the Upanishads are cows, and the milk is Bhagavad Gita. Who is the calf who drank the milk? Arjuna. So, uh, so all the Upanishads are, are compared to uh, cows and the milk is the Bhagavad Gita. So the milk is the essence of the Upanishads. Uh, how do you actually practically apply it in your life? Sometimes Sri Krishna has actually quoted some of the verses from the, directly from the Upanishads in the Bhagavad Gita. The authority of the Gita is that it is based on the Upanishads. It's not because it's Sri Krishna. Uh, so even God depends on the Upanishads for their authority. Uh, Sri Ramakrishna, Swami Vivekananda says about Sri Ramakrishna, is the embodiment of the Vedas. And uh, his life and teachings are commentary on the Upanishads. So Upanishads are foundational to Hinduism. And that those are the foundational texts of Vedanta. So now we have three. Foundation, Upanishads. Then Brahma Sutra. Then Bhagavad Gita. And you can have extensions. Now, one more thing I need to mention here. These are called Prasthanatraya. Prasthanatraya means triple foundation. Another word used is canonical text. So if you study any subject, especially in literature, you'll have a literary canon. Canon means not the canon from which, which you have canon shells. Uh, it is C-A-N-O-N, canon. So it's a body of texts which are taken to be foundational to that tradition. So the canonical texts of Advaita Vedanta are these three or any Vedanta system. Upanishads, Brahma Sutra and Bhagavad Gita. They're together, they're all together they are called triple canon or the triple foundation of Vedanta. Prasthanatrai, the triple foundation of Vedanta. Now they, are, they have different names. Upanishads are called Shruti Prasthana, the Vedic foundation. Uh, Brahma Sutra is called Nyaya Prasthana, the logical foundation. And Bhagavad Gita is called Smriti Prasthana, the, just call it the Smriti foundation. The Smritis are the secondary texts. So everything apart, for example, very well known is Manusmriti. So all the other religious texts, apart from the Upanishads, apart from the Vedas, Vedas are called Shruti, everything else is Smriti. Because Bhagavad Gita belongs to the Mahabharata, Bhagavad Gita is called a Smriti, uh, Smriti Prasthana. So you have three names, Shruti Prasthana, Upanishads, um, the Nyaya Prasthana, Brahma Sutras, and the Smriti Prasthana, Bhagavad Gita. So this is the foundation of, uh, triple foundation of Vedanta. Now on this, there are many, many texts. On all of these, there are commentaries written by uh, Shankaracharya. Shankaracharya has written commentaries on 10, maybe 11 Upanishads. 10 are well known. 11th one is Shvetashvatara. A little doubtful whether Adi Shankaracharya wrote the commentary. Shankaracharya has written his commentary on the Brahma Sutra, known as Brahma Sutra Bhashya. Now the Brahma Sutras are also known as Shariraka Sutra. Shariraka means Sharire Bhavaiti Shariraka. So the one who resides in this body. Who resides in this body? The Atman. So the sutras dealing with the Atman, the sutras dealing with the embodied self. So how, what is the 
bondage and how do we get liberation. The sutras dealing with that, they are called Shari Raka Sutra. Um, Shankaracharya wrote a commentary explaining, so these commentaries are called Bhashyas and they are detailed explanations of the Upanishad, the Brahma Sutra and Bhagavad Gita. He's written commentaries on Bhagavad Gita, he's written a commentary on, um, uh, on the um, Brahma Sutras, known as the Brahma Sutra Bhashya. One more point here. I have mentioned again and again multiple systems of Vedanta, multiple schools of Vedanta. How do these multiple schools originate? What exactly dif differentiates them textually? Because they all accept the Upanishads. They all accept the Vedas. They all accept the Bhagavad Gita. So what differentiates them? The schools of Vedanta are differentiated on their commentary on Brahma Sutra. Let me repeat again. They may have many they have commentaries. Each school has its own commentaries on Gita, Upanishads, so on. But it is the Brahma Sutra commentary which is important. Once your school, once you have a commentary on a Brahma Sutra, you are um, eligible for recognition as an independent school of Vedanta. Once you have an in, uh, a commentary on the Brahma Sutras, you are eligible for recognition as an independent school of Vedanta. So Shankaracharya's commentary on the Brahma Sutras, known as the Brahma Sutra Bhashya, uh, you get the title of being an Acharya. So now he is called Shankaracharya. And his school, his interpretation is called Advaita Vedanta, also known as Keval Advaita, only non-duality, Advaita Vedanta. Then comes Ramanuja, who writes his own commentary on the Brahma Sutras. He has also written commentary on the Bhagavad Gita and a sort of summary commentary on all the Upanishads together. So Ramanuja Acharya, how does he become an Acharya? He writes his commentary on the Brahma Sutras, differing in crucial aspects from Shankaracharya's commentary and that commentary is called Shri Bhashya. That is Ramanuja's commentary on the Brahma Sutras. And so he is called Ramanuja Acharya and his system is called Vishishtadvaita Vedanta. Then along came Madhva and he wrote his commentary on the um, Brahma Sutras. And his commentary is known as Purna Pragya Bhashya because his, his name was Pur, Purna Pragya Tirtha. So Purna Pragya Bhashya and he gets the title Madhvacharya and his, his system is known as Dvaita Vedanta. Similarly, uh, Nimbarkacharya, he wrote uh, the Vedanta Parijata Bhashya and his system is called the Dvaita Dvaita Vedanta uh, system of Vedanta. Um, Shuddha Dvaita system is based on the, uh, the commentary on the Brahma Sutras written by Vallabhacharya. Um, in fact, you know, the Gaurya Vaishnavas, Iskon, everybody knows Iskon here. So their source is in the Gaurya Vaishnava tradition in Bengal. They are also a school of Vedanta. It is called the Achintya Veda Veda school of Vedanta. Uh, the story is that um, in, the, in Jaipur, long ago, in the temple of Govindaji, so uh, there arose a dispute, a group of priests. So the priests were, from, were Vaishnavas from Bengal and the other priests challenged them. What is their school of Vedanta? What is their, uh, their um, fundamental um, belief system? What is their interpretation of Vedanta? 
till that time the followers of chaitanya mahaprabhu used to follow the um, the bhashya the commentary of madhvacharya the purna pragya bhashya so the priest said we follow this interpretation and their opponents said um, but this is this belongs to the dvaita school of vedanta but you are teaching something different you are following the teachings of chaitanya mahaprabhu how is this an authentic school of vedanta you don't have your own interpretation of uh, brahma sutras so they they appeal to the king of jaipur to remove these priests so one of them was a great scholar called baladeva so he vowed that give me some time and he went into the temple of govinda ji and he emerged it is said with a full commentary on the brahma sutras which came to be known as the govinda bhashya and so from that time onwards that has become an independent school of uh, vedanta called the uh, achintya bheda veda school based on the teachings of chaitanya mahaprabhu so these are the different systems of vedanta what are we studying here we are studying advaita vedanta so brahma sutras definitely but based on the commentary of shankaracharya all right that much is enough more than enough actually now let me go ahead um next text number 4 asya vedanta prakaranatvat tadiyehi eva anubandhehi tadvatta siddhehe nate prithag alochaniyaha on account of its being a prakarana treatise of vedanta the anubandhas preliminary questions of the latter serve its purpose as well therefore they do not need to be discussed separately okay what's going on here so these traditional texts after the invocation they will uh, say they are bound to say what are the four preliminaries they are called anubandha chatushtaya in sanskrit anubandha chatushtaya anubandha preliminary chatushtaya chatushtaya four literally the word anubandha means that which ties you to a text inspires you instigates you to read or study that text so before studying any text one must know these four things so that was the traditional way of learning what are the four things one must know before entering into a text adhikari who is qualified to study this text adhikari qualified seeker or the, or the qualified aspirant qualified student adhikari second vishaya what is the subject matter what are we studying vishaya then um, is the prayojana what's the point of it what are we going to gain out, out of studying this what is the purpose of this study so they are very practical what are we going to get out, out of this and then the fourth one is sambandha relationship so usually the relationship could be between the text and what is meant to be taught so here is a book and you're going to teach me about um, myself my the real nature of myself what is the relationship between the subject and this text so we'll talk about it later so four things are to be known before you start any text who is fit to study this who is um, also and what is the subject matter of the text what is the purpose of this study and finally what is the relationship between the text and what it pur- uh, proposes to teach um so this is called anubandha chatushtaya and what was just said here author knows that he has now has to state the four preliminaries he says look this is 
this is going to be an introduction to Vedanta. So whatever are the four preliminaries for Vedanta apply to this text also. The four preliminaries when you study Vedanta is any Upanishad you'll see. Shankaracharya starts by indicating what are the four preliminaries. So whatever are the four preliminaries of Vedanta are the four preliminaries of this one. So we are not going to enter into a detailed discussion of those. Um, and then he will enter into a detailed discussion of those. <laughs> he says, we need not separately state what are the four preliminaries for this book. We are going to go straight into the four preliminaries for Vedanta. Because that serves the purpose of the four preliminaries of this book also. This is an introduction. Notice the word Prakarana. Asya Vedanta Prakaranatva. Because uh, this text being an introduction to Vedanta. So Prakarana is the name of the small treatises, small texts on Vedanta. We have already done a few. Drik Drishya Viveka is a Prakarana. Aparokshanubhuti, which we did, is a Prakarana. Text. Not the whole subject matter, but a particular text. Sometimes the Prakarana deals with only one aspect of the uh, whole Vedanta, one part of it. Or sometimes, uh, like this book, it is an introduction to the whole of Vedanta, but it does not claim to deal with everything in detail. So Prakarana is a small treatise. Prakaranas may be of many types, and they can be very small, like the Drigdrishya Viveka or slightly bigger like this one, or, or like Aparokshanubhuti, or much bigger and much more difficult, like uh, Panchadashi, which is also Prakarana, uh, bigger text. All right. What are the four preliminaries? He is going to mention it in the fifth text. Now we're going to the fifth text. I will take... Uh, Questions after I read out the list. Tatranubandho nama adhikari vishaya sambandha prayojanani. Tatranubandha nama. So, what is meant by preliminaries? Four preliminaries are Tatranubandha nama. Tatra means kutra, where? What was just mentioned earlier. Four preliminaries. So, what are the four preliminaries? Adhikari, qualified seeker or qualified student. Second, Vishaya, subject matter. Third, Sambandha, relationship. And fourth, Prayojana. Prayojana means purpose. What are you going to get out of it? One more uh, little observation here. This was the style of philosophizing in ancient India. What they would do is, it was called Uddesha Lakshana Pariksha. Uddesha Lakshana Pariksha. I can also write it out here in the... Uddesha Lakshana Pariksha. Uddesha list. So first, before you enter into in discussion, please give us the list of topics to be discussed. What are you going to talk about? Tell us that first. It's very logical. Second, define each one of them. What do you mean by each of these words? Third, Let's reason about it, discuss it, criticize it, uh, refine it. So pariksha. Pariksha is examination. Pariksha is a word that is very common to all Indians. We, we all know it. It brings out um, fear and trauma in us because we have gone through so many examinations. It's the same old, uh, it's a very old word. Pariksha means examination. Scrutiny. Uddesha, list. Lakshana, definition. 
Pariksha, examine. So the way they philosophized was, first tell us what you're going to talk about, then define each term so that there's no confusion about what we are talking about, and then let's examine it, scrutinize it, we'll scrutinize your definitions, find out faults in it, refine it, um, arguments and counter arguments, that's Pariksha. Okay. Uh, before I go into, now what, so what he's going to do, you know what he's going to do. He has given us a list. The moment you hear a list, you'll know that he's now going to take up each of the terms and define them. So Adhikari, who is qualified to study? He will take it up. He will define it next. Then Vishaya, what is the subject? He will define that next and so on. Um, before I go into, next one is important, Adhikari. Uh, and we'll see why it is important. Before I go into it, let me just deal with the questions. There's only one person who has raised the hand. Rishi? Uh, Rishi, you can yes. unmute yourself. Uh, Swamiji, um, slightly off topic, but I had a question on uh, Atman. Yes. Um, you know, Ned Block, the philosopher of mind at, uh, at NYU, yes. defines two aspects of consciousness, as access consciousness and phenomenal consciousness, yes. where the latter is the subjective experience. It is, it is the, what is it like in the language of Nagel, I guess. Yes. So is phenomenal consciousness analogous to Atman or does Atman something beyond third or fourth level beyond that. I don't think it is anal analogous to Atman because, it isn't, yes. uh, because it's in a lower life form, uh, maybe in a great ape or something, they show phenomenal consciousness, but in a diminished sense. And Atman cannot be diminished. So, so it cannot be analogous to, uh, which I think you're agreeing with, right? Uh, that's, that's, that's what I wanted to ask you. Yes. Um, Phenomenal consciousness, the first person subjective experience. Vedanta would say, even Sankhya would say, there are two aspects to it. What is it like to taste coffee, to smell a flower, to feel sad, to feel happy? Everything has a different flavor, different kind of feeling is there for each experience. Now note, there are two things going on there. Coffee, flower, sad feeling, they're all different from each other. They are the vishayas, the object of our experience. And they are all lit up by consciousness. So what he's calling phenomenal consciousness is from a Vedantic perspective, the Atman, which is pure consciousness, shining on the mind and reflected in the mind. In the mind comes these vrittis, coffee vritti, sad feeling vritti, pain vritti, flower vritti. Those are lit up by the reflected consciousness in the mind. So, so many levels of analysis are still there, which um, so someone like NetBlock would not uh, admit as yet. Um, so, that's what I wanted to say. What Avedanta talks about as pure consciousness is not different, entirely different from uh, phenomenal consciousness, because phenomenal consciousness will cannot exist without uh, pure consciousness. It's like I give the example of sunlight, moonlight, and the earth at night. According to NetBlock, so when I say moonlight illumines the earth at night, everybody agrees. Yes, moonlight lights up the earth at night. Now, but we all know moonlight is nothing but sunlight. Sunlight is reflected off the moon and then the moon shines on the earth at night. So we see by moonlight, but we know that light actually is coming from the sun. 
In fact, the proof is if the sun was not there, the moon would go dark immediately. Yeah, or after eight minutes, it takes time to travel. So uh, that the moonlight is like the phenomenal consciousness. But in 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 uh, in, in, uh, in an uh, a lower life form than Homo sapiens, yeah. uh, which uh, which may have a lower phenomenal consciousness, it means that that life form is reflecting less of Atman. Yes, the body mind of that is uh, less capable as a reflector. Less consciousness is the uh, less consciousness. And, and okay. the reflector is, is what? The Anandamaya Kosha perhaps? Or the, what, the, what? the reflector is the subtle body and also it depends on how much of the subtle body can act depending on the physical hardware. So you can have all, the entire software, you can download it, but if it's um, um, a lower end computer than your earlier computer, then you'll find a lot of the software is not working anymore. The device, it depends not only on your software, it also depends on your hardware. So uh, I am a human being. My, and fully functional. So my brain uh, can host a lot of the functions of the subtle body and the reflected consciousness thereof. So I can have all these functions at my discipline. I can use all these so-called apps. I've got uh, an app for seeing, for hearing, for smelling, tasting, for emotions, for understanding, all of these, let's call them apps. We can understand in our modern language. But if, I'm, if I enter into the body of a dog or an owl or something, a lot of these apps will go in the sense that they will not work anymore because though the subtle body has these capacities, it will not function in that body. Maybe certain other functions, I, I will be able to hoot like an owl and see in the dark perfectly well like an owl maybe. Uh, so yeah. But consciousness is constant in all of them. The Atman is constant. When you say we are not the body and mind, you mean that you are the consciousness which is channelized through body and mind, but not born of it, not limited by the body-mind. Thank you. So in modern consciousness studies, one can go only up to that, the first person subjective experience. By the way, NetBlock is very, um, I would say, um, very supportive or, or not hostile to at least David Chalmers, uh, their colleagues at NYU. So David Chalmers, hard problem of consciousness, and he is probably the leading philosopher of mind. I've attended a few of his talks. Um, he came to that colloquium on the hard problem of consciousness and Advaita Vedanta. Of course, he was not convinced, but he was interested. Yes. Um, Irul? Uh, Maharaj, uh, Pranam, uh, this, uh, we talked about reflected consciousness, but this is only at the Paramarthic, they said the Babaharika level, right? Yes. All of this is Vyavaharika at the, at the lower level, at the relative level, at the transactional level. Well, the transactional level, it's important because everything, even our studying of Vedanta is also transaction. All the pramanas you talk about, uh, perception and uh, inference, all of the, all the six pramanas, they are all, they work at the transactional level only, Vyavaharika level, even the Shruti. And is there any physical proof of the subtle body or is this is a concept? No, it's not a concept. You are experiencing it all the time. The subtle body, instead of saying subtle body, suppose I say, will, will you ever ask for, is there a physical proof of thinking? What is a physical proof of thinking? Physical means, by, in your terms, physical means material, gross. 
thinking is the subtle body in fact if you ask descartes he could doubt everything even the physical body but he could not doubt that he was thinking cogito ergo sum i think therefore i exist who doubts that they are thinking even to ask this question you had to think so what is the proof of of that that we have thoughts it's directly revealed to us in fact thoughts the subtle body can ask you a question is there any proof that you have a physical body you will laugh that what do you mean i have a physical body really i can show you right now there is no proof of that there is no proof that you have a physical body how do you know that you have a physical body tell me how do you know so feel it i mean you feel it right can you feel it without your mind no all feelings are in the mind if you say i see it but seeing is a perception mediated through the mind if the mind was switched off couldn't see i touch it smell it taste it i feel its existence all of it is in the mind in the mind means it is the mind only thoughts feelings emotions do you not feel a physical body in dreams when yes. in a dream when you don't think it's a dream you are in, in you are in the dream you're talking walking do you feel that i have no body no i feel i have a body you often feel that we have we have a body in our dreams yet when we wake up the whole thing was made up by the mind how do you know what is the um, criterion that this physical body is also not an imagination of the mind according to descartes there is no way of understanding that you know what he said i can doubt everything that i'm sitting in this chair and looking at uh, my fireplace and my study but this fireplace and study might be uh, imagination i may be dreaming i am sitting here this body this body also could be imagination and dreaming in dreams i see a body he thought of what he called a malign demon uh, that uh, an experiment his thought experiment suppose there is an evil demon which can put all thoughts into my all the imaginations and everything it can create today we will call it virtual world <laughs> malign demon is none other than all our computers they are all like these little malign demons they are creating a virtual world for us so we are seeing it but it does not exist so he could he said i, I could even doubt my physical body it could could be possible since i dream it this also could be a dream which that demon is putting into my uh, my head but one thing the demon cannot fool me that i am thinking thoughts thoughts are undoubtable because if you doubt a thought does the thought exist or not that's also a thought to doubt something you have to think and so he said i exist because i think thinking is undoubtable so i do exist vedanta says that you made a double step there vedanta advaita would say monsieur descartes or shriman descartes there who is the thinker of the thoughts in whose light are these thoughts appearing and disappearing to whom that it's very interesting i was reading the original the meditations of descartes as part of my readings at at uh, in the philosophy of mind at harvard so original means not in french i was reading in english so he comes so close and uh, all the questions he uh, he raises the problems he faces in this kind of thinking we have the answers i'm sure academicians in the modern west today are not willing to listen but we have the answers for example i'll give you one he writes descartes himself writes i surely exist 
I surely exist because uh, these thoughts are evident to me. So I, I definitely, cogito or gosam. Cogito means I think, therefore I exist. Then he asks that how strange and everything else in this world, the world outside body, all these can be doubted. One thing I cannot doubt that I exist. And what I can doubt is everything else can be doubted. Now then he sort of, just a little, uh, little pause, little thinking to himself. He has written there. How strange. Those things which I know clearly can all be doubted. And what cannot be doubted, I don't know clearly. What does he mean? This world which is, I know clearly. I see it, hear it, smell it, taste it, touch it. And it can all be doubted. It could be a dream. Today we can say it could be a virtual reality. But what I know, I'm, I, by my philosophical investigation, I found I cannot doubt my own existence because I think so. those things. are. But this I, the one existence which I cannot doubt, that is not clear to me. What is it? I cannot seem to make it an object of my knowledge. I myself. The table is an object of my knowledge. My own hand is an object of my knowledge. Even my thought is an object of knowledge. But I, the thinker of thoughts, the seer of the table, the feeler of the hand, I don't seem to be clear to myself. What is this I? There, Vidyaranya Swami, 300 years, 400 years before Descartes, writes in Panchadashi, it is not clear to you because you are looking in the wrong place. You are looking for an object. And you, the real you, which you, Descartes, you have sort of come close to, that's not an object. That's hidden in the one place you are not looking. It is a concept so new to not only the West, any kind of modern thought. Everything is object here. But nobody thinks about who is the subject of all of these objects. Even the subject, we want to make it an object. Even consciousness, modern consciousness studies, why is it so difficult in modern consciousness studies? They are just stumbling over again and again the simplest of, uh, they're making the simplest of mistakes. They're trying to make the subject into an object. This idea that the subject could be something entirely different from the object. That idea is still not getting, <laughs> in Hindi they say, <laughs> it doesn't get into their, their minds. And it's, it's, a, it's actually a, a, it's a big step. Very simple, but yet very profound. In India, 5,000 years or more ago, the first philosopher, Kapila, he made this step. He says, Purusha, pure consciousness, is not an object. Everything that is objective is within Prakriti, material nature, including thought, up to reflected consciousness. Everything is Prakriti. But the one to whom Prakriti appears, and that one, the, the pure subject, is our real nature, Purusha. It's not an object. That breakthrough, it was made 5,000 years ago, actually more before that, in the Upanishads itself. That is the whole teaching of the Upanishads. Advaita Vedanta goes further. That the subject is different from the object. Drashta is different from Drishya. Then it goes further. What is this Drishya? One Swami in Hindi put it very beautifully. Drashta to Drishya se alag hai hi. Lekin ye poocho, Drishya kya Drashta se alag hai? The objective universe from which you have separated the subject, witness consciousness. Just separate. Witness consciousness is separate from the objective universe. Yes. But is the objective universe separate from witness consciousness? 
that's Gaurapada. Ah, Drashta is separate from Drishya. But is the Drishya separate from Drashta? That we never think. It's a very subtle point. When I say this pen is separate from this pen, it seems obvious. So is this pen separate from this one? Of course. One is separate from the other, other will be separate from this. But no, there's another kind of thing that can happen. Clay is separate from pot. Water is separate from wave. Gold is separate from uh, ornament. How? Clay can exist without being a pot. After the pot is broken, it's still clay. Water can exist without being a wave. Gold can exist without being a necklace. So gold is not equal to necklace. Water is not equal to wave. Um, clay is not equal to pot. But the opposite is pot separate from clay? No. Is ornament necklace separate from gold? No. Wave is separate from water? No. You, the pure consciousness, are separate from the universe. Up to this, Sankhya. But is the universe separate from you? No. Non-duality. Universe is not a second reality apart from you, the pure consciousness. That is the great next great thing which Advaita Vedanta says. I am the witness consciousness, nothing very great there. Sankhya says it. Yoga philosophy says it. It's done, finished. That much also modern consciousness studies has not come up to. I have a number of papers which, which I've studied afterwards. Many cases. The questions they raise, the confusions they get into, we can't get out of this tangle. I was like, I know the answer. So I'm not, it's not my credit. It's all there. Very simple, direct answers. All right, we hope we will get into it. Um, Ned Block. So there was a, a philosopher, Tim William, uh, Williamson, who came to give a talk here um, at NYU. He's one of the leading philosophers in the world today, uh, British. So Ned Block was there. I, I attended that talk just to listen. I mean, in the sofa, sitting there one after another, are the top philosophers of mine. I used to see, I had seen in the Institute of Culture with Gold Park, where the philosophy books are kept, the shelf in which philosophy of mind books are kept. Their books are next to each other. I was seeing those philosophers sitting next to each other on the sofa there. So that kind of people whose textbooks are read all over the world. And you know what they were discussing? The whole point of the discussion is our entire study of philosophy of mind has come to a stop because we are trying to objectify the subject. Not Vedantic perspective. Just that they are realizing now that the whole scientific method was to objectify. And it worked perfectly well. Where did it work perfectly well? With the studies of objects. You're studying the universe, studying the human body, studying illness. They're all objects. And they should be treated like objects. Then you will get a better scientific understanding. But it became the method of science that everything has to be treated as an object. Keep the subjective side. Subjective was seen as a, as a dirty word in science. It shouldn't be subjective. Be objective. But nobody thought, what will happen when the subject becomes your object of study, will you make the subject into an object also? You can't. Then you'll miss the whole point of it. So this was going on. Ned Block was also there. And he clearly said that we have to overcome this problem. How? We'll see. Good. Thank, thank, you. thank you very much, Maharaj. Thank you. Before I end, um, let me just read out the comments. Is Ashtavakra Sanghita canonical text? No. Uh, it will be a Prakarana Granta. So there are different kinds of Prakarana texts. Some are introductory texts, like this one. Or like the Vedanta Paribhasha. 
some are more advanced texts like uh, your panchadashi um, upadesha sahasri naishkarya um, siddhi they teach the same thing but at a much deeper and more advanced level some take up only one aspect of it drigdrishya viveka another introductory text is aparokshanubhuti so those are different kinds of prakaranas there are texts which are dialectical texts vada grantha heavy duty logic texts so advaita siddhi khandana khanda khadya chit sukhi so that's another category of text and there are a few texts which are like final finishing texts ashtavakra sanhita it's not an introductory text absolutely not this is the beginning and that's the end but this is simple and that's also very simple ashtavakra sanhita does not have any argumentation no logic chopping um, it just gives you the essence of the message again and again and again so one uh, great advaita teacher sananda ji in chennai so i asked him once would you consider the ashtavakra nididhyasana text he said yes it's a text for vedantic meditation once you have studied it understood it a very good practice is to meditate upon it and a text which will help you in that vedantic meditation is ashtavakra but that does not mean that you cannot study it at the beginning if you don't study anything at all this text is so powerful you just pick up ashtavakra you will be fascinated even if one does not know anything about vedanta this requires a teacher ashtavakra also a teacher can is helpful but without a teacher also you can fully enjoy it then um, something as shruti as pramana is it generally unquestionable no see questionable means it's the moment you say shruti is pramana a scripture is pramana one thinks that oh you are being told it's a scripture you have to believe it so atman is brahman it is saying so we have to believe that we are brahman no 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 that's a very um, dualistic way or or a theistic way of understanding it here in the case of advaita vedanta the upanishads function as pointers they are showing you something about yourself so you have to follow the pointing and check within yourself in your own experience is it true that's how shruti functions here at first of course you take it on faith just like any textbook when you go to learn physics you don't say that is it questionable yes it can be questioned but from the very beginning you should not say textbook is fake news you should not say that you should say that textbook if i understand it Upanishads and Gita are knowledge is timeless. Manuspriti means are regressive, uh, especially in today's times. Remember, Smriti was meant for particular times. This was an understanding in in Hinduism. Uh, this one must be very clear about this. There is a timeless wisdom which is co- contained in Upanishads, the teaching about the real nature of the Atman, the real nature of the world. Uh, what is it? Brahman, timeless, and that is always true. But about um you know gender and marriage and power and uh, whether you should be loyal to the king or have a democracy all of these things change with time and that was well understood in ancient india that's why a clear distinction was made between shruti and smriti so shruti is the timeless wisdom of the upanishads smritis are their applications to particular times to particular civilizations and contexts that's why you see you have many smritis ashtavaka um, manusmriti is not the only smriti Now, there is uh, Yagnyavalkya Smriti. There are many Smritis. Raghunandan Smriti is there. 
they tell you about rituals about pujas about marriage and uh, so you might find something regressive something you don't have to follow it see in hinduism there are another um, error many people have it's in the text you have to follow and people struggle in their religions it's in my text what do i do i have to believe in it i have to follow it not at all in hinduism you'll go mad if you try to follow all the texts of hinduism everything is there in every if you ask questions to the hindu text the smithi's answers will always be yes and no so you have to follow a set of disciplines which will take you towards your goal so manusmriti certainly there will be portions which are regressive there are portions which are wonderful which are based on the upanishads why is it only the brahma sutra and not the upanishad and the gita but i said it is brahma sutra upanishad and gita uh, rekha ji i think she was asking why is the system dependent only on brahma sutra right remember advaita vedanta vishishta advaita dvaita vedanta these are philosophical systems philosophical systems and the purely philosophical text is the brahma sutra upanishads are the foundation no doubt so yes uh, to understand these systems you would have to read the commentary on upanishads you would have to read the commentary on brahma sutra commentary on bhagavad gita they are all useful and nice but if you go if you are going to philosophize if you are going to be strictly a philosopher you need to look at the brahma sutra commentaries and see the differences in them therefore only the brahma sutras all right um is an uh, gabriel says in out of body experience or astral travel you travel with a subtle body correct that's an experience in the subtle body um continuation of the question above ant and sugar hill apply to the current discussion ant and sugar hill example given by thakur is in correlation to the existence of the same paramatma in different species not quite ant and sugar hill was said by sri ramakrishna because the vastness and endlessness of spiritual experience so an ant goes to a sugar hill hill of sugar and carries a little grain away with great difficulty and looks back and saying i'm coming to take the whole sugar, uh, hill of sugar impossible so all spiritual teachers no matter how great throughout history can only take a tiny bit of the infinity that is brahman and that's what they teach that that also accounts for the differences in the teaching but they are all talking about the same hill of sugar uh, last question from anuradha what is the difference between vedanta sara sangraha and vedanta sara vedanta sara sangraha um that is shankaracharya's text yes so i have not read that but that's also prakarana and that's a different text older than this one but for uh, you see what happens is advaita vedanta went through several hundred years of development after shankaracharya so advaita vedanta does not belong only to shankaracharya it is not that it's one person system it existed in the upanishadic form long before shankara philosophically developed by godapada and then a long line of teachers after shankara have written so many books about it so a few hundred years later this book came along about 800 years after shankaracharya so it encapsulates all those years of of development um so you will find many things here i point out once in a while what why the definitions are being given in this way and not in that way all right thank you very much let me do a shanti mantra and end om shanti 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 hari om tat sat shri ram krishna gopal